Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli experts and practitioners in the domains of military, intelligence, and diplomacy. And our special guest uh, today for a second part of our conversation is Ambassador Ron Prosor. Welcome. Thank you. And you uh, have been uh, posted to uh, Germany, to the Great Britain, to the United Nations, and uh, as the head of the professional foreign service as director general of the foreign ministry, and will soon go back to Germany, this time as the ambassador, after spending some years in retirement as the head of the Abba Ibn uh, Academic Center in uh, Herzliya, next to Tel Aviv, having written a book about your diplomatic exploits or uh, undiplomatic, as you call them, uh, soon to be translated into other languages uh, than Hebrew. So uh, in the early um, or late 1990s, you were told that uh, you are going to Washington. Was that um, a dream for a foreign service officer? The funny thing is that I thought that I would continue with my German expertise after serving in Germany from 88 and 92 and, you know, seeing the wall fall down in, uh, in Germany and a whole, a whole historical change. Uh, and I was quite surprised was I, when I was nominated to Washington uh, directly from London. But I think that the years that I was there, 1998 to 2002, Wye River Memorandum, Camp David, the transition from Clinton to Bush, and 9-11 were enough to write two books. But from my point of view was, I think, uh, uh, the most strategic uh, uh, posting that I had to really understand the core of Israel's defense and foreign policy. Only, I think, in Washington can you really deeply understand uh, this amazing relationship that has effects uh, all over the world. But it's very rare that uh, a professional foreign service officer gets appointed to the embassy as the ambassador of Israel. Usually it's a political appointee, or at least it is decided because of uh, political considerations. So this was not in the cards, not at that time, but even later. Being ambassador where? To the United Nations? Yeah. To the United States. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't ambassador to the United that's, States. That's what? Yeah. So in the sense, uh, I when I came to Washington as the political counselor to Washington, D.C., this is perceived, and I think rightly so, as the number one policy 
political position because you had the political section at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and it gives you an amazing vantage point to understanding. Above you were the DCM, the deputy uh, yeah. chief of mission, and, and the, the ambassador. ambassador. Yeah. And, but the ambassador at that time, or at least part of the time, yeah. uh, David Ivry, yeah. um, was usually um, taking care of other business and was not a public persona. Yeah. So uh, you had uh, a lot of uh, room for maneuver. Yes, I had a lot of room for maneuver. And I think here what I did was something that I write about. In the, I came in 1998, and everyone focused on the Democratic side with Al Gore and Clinton. And there was an amazing relationship. And I decided to focus on... On the Republican side. But you know, this is the oldest uh, rule in the book. Uh, Be in with the outs. Uh, absolutely. I mean, but I was the only one that did that. Uh, I, I went to Richard Pearl and I asked him, if Republican, give me, you know. Richard Pearl was a Henry Jackson Democrat, but the Democrats during the Reagan period moved rightward. Okay. And so basically I asked, you know, Who is on the list on the repub if you guys come in and by coincidence and this is you know a combination of hard work and luck most of the people that I connected to when they were not in position went into very senior positions National Security Council Department of State Department of Defense Vice President's office really and in the sense it was uh, it was amazing because you know how it is I think in every place. When you know someone when he was not in position, you basically have a dialogue. He was in your house. You talked. I think it's a different story. And I, from my point of view, it was really gratifying to see, you know, uh, and very effective and constructive. For well, the you, you invest in a share when it's not in demand. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, uh, it's the hottest commodity in town. Absolutely. And uh, so in the sense... Uh, Washington uh, was an amazing time. Now, you mentioned uh, the um, Why River Memorandum. Um, first the conference, yeah. then the memorandum, and then you had Shepherdstown and, and Camp David. Sure. Um, how much did the politicians coming from Israel with their delegations, how much did they make use of the professionals on the embassy staff in Washington? So... Here, I think we created the infrastructure, but as politicians are at that level, and you saw it at why, you know it's it's you know they they deal with with the counterparts and very, very acute to the political implications. So just think in Israel, who participated? It was Bibi Netanyahu, Ariel Sharon. Itzik Mordechai, Sharansky. Sharansky was the only one... These that, are four ministers. Yeah, 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 four ministers. Basically, Sharansky was the only one that could talk to all three of them. They barely talked to each other. So uh, it was really interesting to see that interaction. And for me, for the first time, to see, you know, both Clinton and Al Gore run around with sweaters in a informal capacity. And the we late moved. Madeleine Albright who just passed away? Absolutely. And we moved with the Palestinian delegation. It was seeing a setting of how a international, you know, a 
conference and negotiations take place, which are very different than what sometimes we read in books. So this is late 1998, and a few months later, Netanyahu is defeated by Ehud Barak, who then comes over to, to Washington and for the uh, meetings with the Syrians at Chapelstown and with Arafat at Camp David yeah. in the year 2000. That's right. What was the experience uh, from your point of view? So I'm taking out of it something for me after Camp David, what dawned on me, which was different than what I thought in the past, because in the past I thought Israel really didn't make a serious offer on the table. After that, and the reaction that came, it brought great questions marks for me. Do they really want peace? The Palestinians. The Palestinians. Uh, and it's something that for me, that question was raised for the first time because I was there. You can argue, you know, how much, you know, Barak put on the table. It was 97%, 95%. But wow, this was a serious offer on the table, which uh, the Palestinians, in a sense, uh, reacted with violence and terror. And for me, it was, a, 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 until today, I think something, I mean, from my point of view, also my political, was to really see that happening. Uh, it's not, uh, I, you know, we had a lot of things happening afterwards, but this was uh, something that still is in my mind as a question. One problem uh, with the um, diplomatic uh, progress is that the election cycles in Israel and the United States are not synchronized. Sometimes it does happen that two uh, new president and prime minister come in, but it cuts off the progress made until the very last day of the preceding administration. Uh, this happened with Kissinger when Carter came in and with Baker when Clinton came in and with the time that you are talking about when Clinton, up until his very last moment in office, tried to salvage That's a right. deal. And then, then we had to wait for perhaps 9-11 and other efforts uh, to, to start and recreate something out of chaos. Yeah, but it's important to emphasize that it wasn't because of Clinton or Barack. Here, you know, we tend to sometimes not say it was because... Uh, and I think Clinton, in all, you know, although diplomatically, basically made it clear that the fault here was on Arafat uh, and the Palestinians, you know, maybe it wasn't enough support from the Arab world. But bottom line, uh, here it wasn't for the lack of trying, okay? Well, you know, after 9 11, um, a friend of and colleague of yours, uh, Harry Knetal, yeah. who was one of Israel's ambassadors in Europe, arranged a meeting with Javier Solana, yeah. who at the time was no longer with NATO, he was uh, with the European Union. Union. And um, during the conversation, he asked whether he could uh, present a question to me. So he said, of course, go ahead. He said, why doesn't Arafat act like Musharraf? Musharraf of Pakistan knew enough to change his policy right after 9-11 and help United States and get on the good side of President Bush. Arafat stayed the same course, believing that violence will get him somewhere. It didn't. 
absolutely not. And it's a, it's a great tragedy. So you came back from Washington. Um, you had to spend time uh, at headquarters. So I was uh, first nominated as Deputy Director General for Strategic Affairs. This was setting a precedent. I was nominated to something I really actually knew something about. But uh, afterwards, uh, I became Chief of Policy Staff uh, to Minister Sylvan Shalom and then headed the Foreign Ministry, uh, both during Sylvan's time and afterwards during Tsipi Livni's uh, time as Foreign Minister. She, she was really amazing seeing her work Uh, in Brussels, mm-hmm. um, when she came to a NATO ministerial, was seeing uh, not only a hard-working uh, foreign minister, but also uh, quite esteemed by her colleagues. Absolutely. She received a lot of, I think, respect. And uh, it was also interesting that she really, from you know, the house that she came from, and the idea of right the right wing, uh, she really was... Uh, was honest, she was tough, she really, I think, wanted to reach an agreement, uh, still maintaining something about, you know, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, that people don't give her enough credit. She was the one with Sharon that basically talked about this very seriously. I enjoyed very much working with her. And, uh, and uh, you know... She was the one that nominated me to uh, the United Kingdom. Now, before you went to London, as Director General of the Foreign Ministry, you probably uh, saw a lot of cabinet uh, meetings. Yeah. Uh, also during the war um, in Lebanon uh, in 2006. So, yeah. So. And, and the national security staff yeah. was established. What was the, the uh, staff uh, level working group? which you belong to. What was the one? Okay, so this is a very good point. As Director General of the Foreign Ministry, you are privy, you're part of the cabinet meetings on Sunday. By the way, a lot of business can be done because you have the other Director Generals with you. So this was working, and you see the government and the way it operates, and you basically prepare the Foreign Minister on the things that he's saying before the cabinet. Or she. Or she, of course. Uh, so this, is, uh, this was uh, important. But still, when you look at the defense establishment and the people around the prime minister, you have the military advisor. You have, you know, the... Chief of staff chief and of chief staff, intelligence. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have anyone from the foreign ministry. The only one in the foreign ministry is usually the deputy national security advisor for... Uh, foreign affairs, okay? And he does not put this, I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, it's a huge mistake because that element is really important to have. There. I'll give you an example. During uh, Shomer Chomot, uh, Guardian of the Walls, Guardian of the Walls uh, for example, the This Ar- was last, last May. Last May. The army, uh, you know, because of some computer, uh, basically, uh, came out and said, we managed to destroy the metro in Gaza. The underground and, network where the Hamas operatives ran into. Okay, so someone like me afterwards reacted automatically. And I, if I was being there or anyone else, I would say, guys, don't use the metro as an analogy because the one sitting in France eating a croissant 
uh, and you know, in the boulangerie or patisserie, is you know he is he, he won't be able to really uh, take it down because the metro is something that and ought- and indeed we saw during the Russia Ukraine war civilians hiding in the metro tunnels in Kiev. Absolutely. So in the underground, the tube in London, the underground in New York, this was an analogy that if someone would be there, easy stuff would be, of course, a change, but not just that. Uh, it's really understanding on, you know, how the world looks, how much time you have in the Security Council uh, to operate, uh, and, and, and. So we really need someone there at the high level that is able to give guidance to decision makers in times of crisis. Now, London. Um, Washington is obviously the pinnacle of uh, diplomacy, the capital of the world, as London was 60, 80, 100 years yeah. ago. But then if you go down one rung on the ladder, uh, what are the most important embassies for Israel nowadays? So I think, uh, truthfully, now I think the, uh, after the United States and the UN, you have... Uh, you, have you, you put the UN on the same level? Yes, uh, because it's, uh, in essence, you are, you're like the ambassador to the world, uh, and you have a free hand to enter, and you see the whole world reacting. So it's, it's I think, yeah, I would, I would say that this is the case. Uh, in Washington, I still think that Washington, you know, is the, but the amount of people that are on the line and the different avenues basically create a situation where the ambassador is not the only address, okay? At the UN, I think you're still an address uh, much more. Uh, because you're there, and I would put Germany uh, as, in Europe, as the leading country, you know, Germany, France, the UK is now out of the, out of the EU. But uh, you, you didn't prevent Brexit. I didn't prevent Brexit, but I'm saying that although the United Kingdom and France are part of the Security Council, which elevates them, I still would say that Germany... Uh, and its influence inside Europe and also towards Israel, I think ranks uh, high. In our- How important uh, is the ambassador to the uh, European Union when we know that the bilateral relations with the member states yeah. are more important? So, uh, look, it's like, you know, international structures. Uh, I think it's important because the mechanics and the hydraulics of the European Union. It's like the UN. It's a big machine. And you have to understand how this machine works in order to be effective and also to prevent problems from this machinery. As a parliamentarian. As a parliamentarian. And also, look, you know, you have a government. The, you know, most people don't know that the European Union has a government which is called the Commission. And you have, I don't want to get into the, but in essence, you have to know how to operate with the commissioners. You have to know how to operate on the parliamentary level. And uh, it's a huge, huge challenge for Israel. Uh, Although, truthfully, when you have uh, 
ambassadors working correctly in the different countries in Europe, of course, it adds and helps the ambassador. How important is the prime minister in Britain nowadays? Uh, you don't have a Churchillian uh, figure or a Thatcher. And, uh, they, and even Tony Blair has come and gone. And after that, uh, you don't see uh, people of either gender of uh, high stature. So I would say the following. And you know, if you allow me, I'll take your question and, and widen it. What happens to foreign ministries today all over the world, okay? Not just in Israel, but all over the world, and I'm emphasizing democratic countries, not Russia or China. You see a transition for decision makers that the foreign affairs are being dealt from 10 Downing Street or the White House, or let's take Israel as an example. You see that as a trend the Elysee in France, and not just the Quai d'Orsay, which is the uh, French foreign ministry. And why is that? I think it's because in today's world, foreign ministries have to give decision makers an added value. They need expertise. They cannot be the jack of all trades. So it basically puts a big question mark. And my take as a professor now at the university is basically to look and say, hey, if the structures, the way foreign ministries operate, both internally and if they don't change the way they think and operate, they might become distinct like dinosaurs. So we have to change, use technology, and understand that the position of an ambassador today is completely different than when it was 100 years ago. Uh, well, maybe not 100 years ago, but 50 or 30 years ago, cables were the coin of the realm. And uh, it's very good for uh, diplomatic historians. But now uh, they have been overtaken by WhatsApp, email, or the regular phone call. Uh, and there is hardly any record uh, to look into when uh, your principals are, are talking uh, uh, picking up the phone and, and very casually uh, arranging stuff behind your back. So I think it's, first of all, it's not behind the back, but what you see is the technology, and you're absolutely right, they talk to each other, they phone, and I think this is not going to change, it's going to even intensify. So what really happens? The minute, for example, a prime minister talks with his counterpart, someone has to do the follow-up. So the words turn into actions. This is what the foreign ministry should do and is and basically needs to do that and create from a conversation something which is operational. And uh, I think that we have enough, uh, I think, expertise to be able to do that. Uh, and I would even say that if we're talking about innovative diplomacy, here we are, Israel, as a startup nation. We have all the technology. We're not using, for example, face recognition to move forward in the consular side, passports, visas. We should be able to do that. And, and by the way, it will cost much less. Secondly, big data. We have cutting edge technologies. And we should look at every country in like a consumer life to target the person, the people in what interests them, and pass the relevant messages short to the point. 
narrowcast rather than broadcast. Absolutely, narrowcast. And then you have, for example, virtual reality. So you can sit in Buenos Aires, and basically I can walk you through the tunnels of Hezbollah or Hamas and give you a feeling... So in the well, sense, if you if you live in Israel, you do live in virtual reality all the time. <laughs> But I'm saying, this is you know technology in the hands of diplomacy, and we should be able to do that, and uh, maybe be the first ones to really be on the cutting edge. One one additional advantage of being the permanent representative to the United Nations, which is a long way of saying the ambassador to the UN is that uh, you can deal with countries um, which do not have diplomatic relations with Israel. Now, so, what can you unveil of these secret meetings? First of all... They will not remain <laughs> secret uh, if you do that, but please. No, but it's... Uh, first of all, you're absolutely right. In, Germans, they, in German, you say, Kuss mich nicht unter den Linden. Don't kiss me in the main road of Berlin. Don't tell the Linden. So, yes. so we basically talk to countries that we don't have diplomatic ties. We didn't do that in the General Assembly Hall. New York is a lot of place. I can say, for example, that Pakistan uh, was an example of something that uh, uh, my former colleague and myself started at the UN. When I was director general, I continued, and it came up in the meeting between the foreign minister of Pakistan and Silvan Shalom with a Turkish uh, interlocutor. interlocutor in the four seasons in Istanbul. Uh, and this was Musharraf basically checking. Uh, so stories like that, uh, I have a lot, but I think people in Israel and the world would be amazed and surprised at the outreach and the countries that Israel talks to under the radar screen. And sometimes you prepare a meeting between the heads of governments of state for during the General Assembly yeah, when yeah. the GA convenes each uh, autumn. Yeah. This is the time for such secret meetings Absolutely. on the highest level. Because they all flock into New York. Our spectators should know that in New York for the General Assembly, Anyone can come in, even you have a mass murder, a dictator, that you won't receive a visa to the United States, you're allowed to come to New York in a 25-mile radius from the UN. So uh, in essence, everyone can come in for these two weeks of the General Assembly. This is the Manhattan Project. Now, <laughs> Ambassador uh, Ron Prosser, um, luckily for you, we only have like... 30 or 40 seconds, so you won't be able to say everything you want to say about the German assignment ahead of you. But a few words. First of all, for me personally, it's closing a circle. My father is from Berlin. I think I'm coming to Germany, uh, not just with a different uh, political leadership, but Germany, which is beginning to question Uh, the whole posture of what they would call the Ostpolitik and German-Russian relations, which has, I think, a huge, huge influence, uh, both inside Europe and outside Europe. And I'm really looking forward for the challenge. So an exciting new time for Germans, both a new chancellor and a new Israeli ambassador. Ron Prosser, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you. We will uh, be here again for another edition of Watchmen Talk uh, soon. 
This is uh, TV7 News, Israel. Goodbye from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.